0: Great to you along for some more half-arsed history this week on the agenda. going to be having a chat about the rise of the Aztec Empire, or to give it its proper name, actually, the Triple Alliance. And uh, one bloke in particular who was instrumental in developing this regional power, a bloke called Moctezuma. Um, now, the Triple Alliance, it was, you'll be surprised to learn, an alliance surprise, surprise, of three city-states, so very well-named, um, three city-states in and around the Valley of Mexico, which is today, today obviously, where you'd find Mexico City in Mexico, so, you know, the naming convention all really checks out there. Anyway, growing from humble beginnings, right, this alliance, this triple alliance, it grew to become an empire, well, in a, I mean, we don't really have a proper word for what it was, but empire is about as close as we can get there. Um, and it is obviously known to history as the Aztec Empire. This is the name that you're probably familiar with. Uh, but Aztec was, was a term that was uh, coined really late in the piece, only in, in the nineteenth century. A bloke named Alexander von Humboldt, a, a scientist, he was the one who coined the term Aztec to describe to describe you know the people who lived in the Triple Alliance and sort of outside. It's both a national and an ethnic term, and the the makeup of this uh, you know this sort of group the triple alliance the people inside and outside of it. it is it doesn't really sort of fall into into the, the classical definitions that we have with these words so we're getting sort of as close as we can here um but, but the the term aztec can be used to describe again you know uh, people on, on a national level or on an ethnic level cultural level uh so sometimes you know it does refer to people who live outside the empire. But today, just for clarity, when we talk about Aztecs, we're, talking, we're referring to the people involved with the Triple Alliance. And uh, as I say, the, the alliance grew to become very mighty indeed, uh, conquered other city-states, incorporated them into the empire, although they still enjoyed a fair bit of you know, regional autonomy so long as they paid tribute to the empire and you know, um, uh, supplied them with troops, whatever else. And perhaps the most significant thing to, uh, to emerge from this period of, you know, of empire building uh, was the dominance of the city of Tenochtitlan, Tenochtitlan became the largest city not just in the Aztec Empire but also throughout the pre-Hispanic Americas altogether as a whole across you know North South America Tenochtitlan was the largest city um, in uh, across two continents, so it's it's very very important, very significant story here. The story of uh, Tenochtitlan as the as the seat of power really for the Aztec Empire. And today we're going to talk about the uh, we're going to talk about this city. We're going to talk about the rise of the empire, the Triple Alliance, and and the path that was taken to regional dominance here. A lot of different people involved, of course, but one very important bloke was Moctezuma the uh, First, sometimes referred to as Montezuma. You may have heard of him, um, and he was the second empire, emperor of uh, of the Aztecs. Uh, Moctezuma he consolidated the empire's power. He conspa- he expanded its borders quite significantly, significantly, uh, and was a huge influence, greatly influenced the uh, the empire's development for, for years to come, even after his death, and, and was instrumental in its rise to power, which is very interesting, makes it all the more interesting, because Moctezuma II, his descendant, his great-grandson, played a big part in the downfall of the Aztec empire. That's a story we're going we're gonna to come to next week. We'll talk about uh, Moctezuma II and, and the downfall of the Aztecs next week. But uh, for now, let's talk about how the Aztec empire was born out of a small tribal group setting up shop in the... Middle of a swamp in a lake, and uh how you know, people such as Moctezuma the, the first uh set it on a path to greatness. But before we begin, big big thanks here to Eric Macido who uh, who wrote in and led me to investigate the story of of Tenochtitlan and the Triple Alliance. Thanks so much, Eric. Great suggestion. I did have a great time reading about learning something about it. You know, an often overlooked piece of history here. So uh cheers very much for the uh, for the suggestion there, mate. Good on you. Anyway, let's get to it. Let's get to it here and, uh, and chat about the establishment, the Arasia, the Arasia Aztec Empire, and, and we'll meet our mate Moctezuma the first. Off we go. Here we go. <coughs> We're going all the way back, all the way back here, all the way back to the year 1325, around 700 years ago, the 14th century. Uh, It's traditionally held that in the year 1325, specifically, this was the year uh, that it is said that Tenochtitlan was founded by the Mexica. Uh, These were a a nahua speaking people. They immigrated to the Valley of Mexico in the early 14th century, and the legend goes that these Mexica people they came across a a swampy island in the middle of a a lake, Lake Texcoco. Uh, and on this lake, there was an eagle sitting on top of a cactus. And uh, the, the eagle may or may not have been eating a snake, according to the legend. We're not sure if that was actually part of the original legend or it was actually added on later, right? We're not 100% on that bit. We do know, uh, you know, the legend originally involved um, uh, a cactus and an eagle. And uh, this was given as a sign, right, as a sign of, of, of by from the gods that this is where the, the city should be found. And you may recognise this scene uh, from Mexico's flag today. Apparently, this was a sign where Mexi- the Mexica should found their city. That's just what they did. And today, where that city was founded, Tenochtitlan all those years ago, today, you'll now find Mexico City. Again, an enormous, huge, sprawling metropolis. But it started apparently as a, you know, very small city on a very small town, even on a, uh, on a, on a swampy lake island, uh, which is a bit of a weird decision. Because definitely wasn't the ideal spot for a city, as you know, boggy, swampy, marshy island, middle of a lake. But they did make it work, and the, and the city of uh, Tenochtitlan, uh, it was on its way after this uh, after this establishment in, in apparently the year 1325, uh, grew larger and larger over the years in terms of population and size. And soon enough, the Mexica were physically expanding the island, actually growing it uh, to engulfing other, you know, engulf other small islands uh, in the lake as as they grew it larger and larger, and a farming method known as chinampa. Uh, grew crops in shallow lake beds and wetlands. The city flourished as a result of this farming method, which you know enabled them to use the uh, the, the very swampy, boggy morass that they were living into uh, to you know as fertile, arable farming land. So it was uh, it was very very effective there. And uh, on the political front, Tenochtitlan it um it allied itself with another city state. Uh, Ascapotzalco, the some of these the, some of these names are just wild. It's I do apologise to anyone who you know is is taking umbrage with the way I'm pronouncing this. I'm doing my very best. Ascapotzalco, I think I don't know. Uh, paying tribute to the king of uh, uh, Ascapotzalco, a bloke whose name was Tezozomoc, right? So Tenochtitlan allied itself with uh, with uh, Ascapotzalco, became a client state under the rulership of a more powerful king. But even so, even being a client state, despite this Tenochtitlan, it grew in size and in power, It established itself as a as a reasonably strong military as well as economic power uh, here on this lake. And warriors, in specific, uh, in particular, warriors from Tenochtitlan were were uh, highly valued, highly prized, and they were sent by Azcapotzalco to fight and conquer other city states. And the uh, the Tenochtitlan military became known for. Um, taking as many prisoners as they could during these battles. We'll come back to that later, but they were known as a, as a very fierce fighting force. And again, they would, rather than take no prisoners, it would be take many prisoners. And, and there's a re- good reason for that, which we'll, uh, which we'll talk about. But in 1372, right, around five decades after Tenochtitlan was, had been founded, its first Tlatoani, uh, which can roughly be translated as king, uh, was crowned, right? This is a bloke whose name was Akamapichli. And uh, things cruised along relatively smoothly under the, the leadership of, of various Tlatuanis um, until 1426, when the death of the king of uh, Azcapotzalco, Tetsuzomok, who, again, who has been around for 50 years here. This bloke was well over 100 by the time he died. Um, but when he died, there was a succession crisis, right? And the Tlatuani of Tenochtitlan, a bloke whose name was Itzcoatl. He didn't recognize the new king of Azkarpatsalka, right? This bloke, this new bloke whose name was Matshtla. And uh, as a result of this, right, as a, a result of one of the major client states of Azkarpatsalka basically, you know, saying, well, no, you know, stuffing your new king up your ass, mate, we're not going to recognize him. Um, a civil war erupted. So Tenochtitlan, uh, they weren't the only one that wasn't happy with uh, the new you know, the new king of Az- Azcapotzalco, weren't the only one that was re- wasn't going to recognise him. And this, out of this civil war, is where the Triple Alliance was born. Tenochtitlan, it allied itself with Texcoco and Tlacopan, two other dissident city-states who weren't happy with Machla, um, and together, right, they fought and they beat Azcapotzalco, gaining their independence and claiming the conquered lands for themselves. Now, this wasn't a, a thing where, you know, they just sort of gained their independence from Azcapotzalco. Azcapotzalco became now a client state of this new alliance, right? The Triple Alliance, what we today call the Aztec Empire, it began as these three small city-states all under the suzerainty of Azcapotzalco. Azca, Azca but after this, after they won, they fought and won the civil power, they now established themselves as the new regional power. And, you know, the reason we've talked about, well, the reason, you know, obviously the Triple Alliance it involves uh, not only Tenochtitlan, it also involves Texcoco and Tlacopan. but the main reason we've talked so much about Tenochtitlan. Is because, you know, not the other two, is because the Tenochtitlan quickly emerged as the primary power of the Triple Alliance. It was the largest, it was the most prosperous city in the Triple Alliance, and it slowly but surely came to dominate the political affairs of this new empire. And uh, one of the principal architects of this consolidation of power was, of course, none other than Moctezuma I. But before Moctezuma, however the f- the first emperor of the tri- of the Triple Alliance was of course as i mentioned before this bloke it's the bloke who first uh, you know raised his banner in uh, in in revolt there he was the uh, he's the Tlatwani TF- of uh, tenochtitlan when the civil war first broke out. And so after beating Azcapotzalco, Itzcoatl, he turned the attention of the Triple Alliance farther afield. After sort of setting himself up as, as the head honcho there uh, of this Triple Alliance, uh, he secured a string of vit- victories over other smaller city-states in the Valley of Mexico and he began to develop the city further. He uh, he oversaw building projects, roads and causeways and bridges across, you know, this this shallow lake that the city was established on. Um, to enable easy passage in and out of Tenochtitlan. And um, on top of that, began a number of building projects within the city itself. You know, big temples, government buildings, these were all constructed as Tenochtitlan continued to grow and prosper. But these were the only changes that were made under Itzquatl. Itzquatl also paved the way for some of Moctezuma's biggest and most important reforms, which involved the establishment of new religious and political norms. Tenochtitlan was still on relatively equal footing with other members of the Triple Alliance uh, under the leadership of Quetzal to, to begin with at least, but this would all change in the years to follow, and especially in the years to come under the leadership of Moctezuma. So Itzquadal did a lot of stage setting for the bloke we're about to talk about, I feel like that's important to note, And 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 finally, also, unfortunately... Itzquatl also ordered that all old historical documents be burnt, an act of historical vandalism that allowed him to start to build a new state-sponsored history from the ground up. And this was a very, you know, very uh, important factor in the dominance of, of Moctezuma as well, as we'll talk about. And book burning, of course, a terrible crime. Um, Itzquatl's decision to destroy much of the history of his people does limit our understanding of what happened back then. But as this history was re- uh, rewritten, started to be, you know, rewritten, this, this new state-sponsored history, Itzquatl was sure to put Tenochtitlan and the Mexica in a much more prominent and important uh, position, right? Generally speaking, uh, something which may have aided their reputation, their development in the years to come, but it certainly did uh, give them a little bit of a clean slate. Uh, and Moctezuma certainly made the most of that, as we'll discover. In any case, it's quite set the stage for the eventual dominance of the, of, uh, of Tenochtitlan uh, within the Triple Alliance, and more broadly, the regional dominance of the empire that the alliance then went on to forge, what we today, you know, obviously call the Aztec Empire. But the bloke who really sealed the deal was, of course, Moctezuma I, the second emperor of the Triple Alliance, the successor to Itzquadal, and the man responsible for consolidating it as one of the most powerful pre-Hispanic civilizations in the Americas. Moctezuma was the nephew of Itzquadal, and he inherited the throne in 1440. Itzquadal died around age 60, and Moctezuma himself at this point was 42 when he took the throne, so he's, you know, he's got a couple of years under his belt. He'd served as a general for Itzquadal, um, before being elected emperor by Aztec nobles, as I say, in 1440. And I tell you what, his coronation, once he took the throne, it was something to be seen. He had a great big carry-on. He, was, he made a great big song and dance of it, you know, huge ceremony that involved, well, amongst a lot of other things, a lot of human sacrifice. Um, human sacrifice is something that has become closely associated with the Aztecs. We'll chat about it a bit later on. Don't you worry about that, but uh, we'll, we'll get across it. But I'll tell you what, a lot of people had their, had their hearts ripped out uh, uh, during the coronation of Moctezuma. Um, and let's go. Let's let's talk about what he got up to once he was crowned emperor. Because he really did hit the ground running. He worked very hard to solidify the links of friendship between Tenochtitlan and the other two members of the Triple Alliance, while still ensuring that Tenochtitlan remained the dominant member. So it's not as if he came in and did a sort of a massive big power grab and tried to push the other two out. Not at all. But he certainly did walk the fine line between you know maintaining bonds of friendship and uh, and solidarity, maintaining the stability of the empire, while still ensuring that the development and the growth and the dominance. Of Tenochtitlan was the first thing uh, on his list, and a lot of what he did was via internal reforms, um, uh, reforming you know things like the the tribute system of the empire, working very quickly and and mercilessly really to stamp out any potential uh, dissidents or or threats to the stability of this young empire. So he's very cluey in in how he went about making you know shoring up his power, consolidating because again, very new political system, very new um empire that had been established and Moctezuma understood that he needed to to make sure that his grip on power was uh, was really uh, cast in iron so he did things like sending out uh, Mexico tribute collectors individually uh, went around to gather payment from gather payment from client states you know directly uh, consolidating economic power in the hands of, uh, of of the Mexican, in the hands of Moctezuma himself, really, rather than you know allowing um, other leaders, other rulers underneath him to do it, he he oversaw this uh, almost like tax collection, basically. Uh, very, very directly with um, with the administration of Tenochtitlan, um, and when he adding new lands to the empire, um, Moctezuma and other empires, emperors after him, they, they he would allow the conquered rulers to stay in power so long as they submitted to him as their overlord. But any troublesome or uncooperative leaders under him, whether they were new or old or anything, right, immediately replaced, immediately replaced by by people who would more or less become puppet rulers. They were just, you know, Mexico governors who were more or less under under the direct thrall of, um, of Tenochtitlan and, and, and of Montezuma. So, you know, while I said that there was a fair bit of autonomous power that was granted to these vassal states, it was only very much if you towed the line. And the moment that uh, Moctezuma, you know, had his eye on you, you're in, you're in big, big trouble. And this led ultimately to a very stable realm. Semi-autonomous regions having access to imperial trade, military protection. Uh, it worked very well um, uh, in exchange, of course, for them giving regular tribute to Tenochtitlan as the sort of seat of power, again, of this uh, of this burgeoning empire. And overall... The early years of Moctezuma's realm were—they were relatively peaceful, relatively prosperous. He continually sought to widen the borders of the Aztec Empire, but given the civil wars and conflicts of the years previously, things were pretty chilled out. A lot, you know, there wasn't there weren't a lot of huge, big, bloody wars fought to uh, to expand the empire, and, and the borders did grow nonetheless. Um, and of course you know with the empire growing the seat of its power its capital Tenochtitlan it flourished like never before it was already a pretty grand city but under Moctezuma it only developed further you remember of course it was on an island by by now the great many you know bridges and causeways that are, that connected it to the lake shore um, and Moctezuma ensured that all of them could be pulled down very quickly in case of an attack on the city. But because water traffic was such an important part of living on a city in a lake, right, canals were dug and constructed all the way through the city itself, which meant that you could get to more or less any part of the city on land, on foot, or by boat. And this was obviously a very important thing in, in modernizing the, the the sprawling marketplaces of the imperial capital. Um, people can get around very easily. You know, bring the goods that they've brought to uh, for, for sale to the market uh, without too much hassle using these, uh, using the series of canals that were that was built. And you might ask, well, why didn't they just use the roads like everyone else? And it's because the Aztecs never invented the wheel. Uh, so the uh, whenever anyone wanted to transport any any goods anywhere, you basically just had to carry it yourself because you, there was no such thing as a wagon. Uh, they never invented the wheel. They they had they they used the wheels as like toys basically, but they never actually had wagons. They didn't have draft animals, so basically people would just be carrying stuff um, themselves. And obviously that meant that any any water based transport system was going to be uh, a lot more uh, efficient in terms of getting goods around. Anyway, under Moctezuma's reign. Uh, these weren't the only civil engineering projects that were undertaken however you know there was there were there was also a, a range of other ones including an enormous levy Right, which separated the waters around the city with the rest of the lake, and the reason for this is Lake Texcoco. Right, it got saltier the further east you went away from the streams that fed into it on the western bank, and so Moctezuma oversaw the construction of this enormous dike. It was huge, about 15 kilometres long, to keep the waters around the city as, as fresh as possible. And you remember they were using um, they were using sort of waterborne farms almost to. to uh, uh, to grow food, so this was obviously very helpful in in that regard as well. So this huge, big, 15-kilometre-long levee, bloody enormous, and it was uh, one of two important freshwater-based projects that developed the city, because the second after this levee was a system of aqueducts that provided fresh water to the city for bathing, cleaning, and washing. Now, Aztecs, bathing was a very important part of the culture of the Aztecs. They would bathe twice daily. Moctezuma himself was said to bathe four times a day. And so this is a a great modernization for, for this, again, enormous sprawling metropolis that new people are coming to every single day. Moctezuma also put, in, um, put into place some pretty serious social reforms, as well as the building projects and everything else like that. He strongly influenced the role and the nature of religion on day-to-day life, as well as changing societal class roles. Now, Aztec society already pretty stratified before he came to power, divisions between, you know, different classes of people. But Moctezuma, he turned this up to 11. He instituted reforms that further divided the noble ruling classes from the working classes, forbidding any interaction between the two, in some cases, on pain of death. There was no intermarrying. And if you even slept with someone of the wrong class, you could be executed. So they really weren't mucking around. And, you know, as part of this stratified class system, Moctezuma set up schools for the respective classes, which focused very strongly on strict religious instruction. And this will be important a little bit, so remember that. Um, and uh, these schools also helped to cement the idea that Tenochtitlan and the Mexica the Mexica people were the main movers and shakers in the empire so these societal reforms really did have a big impact again on this on this young empire and were very important for its uh, its development both uh, both during the rule of Moctezuma and and in the time afterwards and Tenochtitlan it thrived. I mean the the empire as a whole thrived in the in the early years of, of Moctezuma's rule, but Tenochtitlan in particular had enormous marketplaces that with goods that were available from, you know, all throughout the empire, throughout this this massive imperial trade network, huge big temples an imperial palace, other magnificent buildings that, you know, showcase the uh, the wealth and the prosperity of the of this city. And as the years passed, the city and the empire only grew more prosperous, more powerful as Moctezuma added more and more lands to the realm. From 1445 onwards, 5 years into his rule, Moctezuma began to push eastward uh, towards the Gulf of Mexico, and in doing so, he conquered new city-states and brought their land under Aztec control along with the goods that they produced. And so now the imperial, you know, now this this um, imperial trade network, imperial co- commerce also saw the trading of things like rubber, cocoa and once they they reached the coast even stuff like seashells so this empire was expansive it was vast and it was uh, it was very wealthy as as these goods moved around and, and as people you know had access to stuff that they uh, may not have even even seen in their lifetimes as uh, as the borders of the empire began to grow and grow and and with the with the you know the growth of these borders came to the the the, the building of roads and road systems Roads expanded throughout the extent of the empire, guarded by, by patrolling soldiers. This was all part of, you know, the stability of the empire. Um, people made their way about trading their goods. But again, for all these technical advancements, uh, all the engineering projects, the great buildings and whatever else, the Aztecs still never got around to inventing the wheel. And without any draft animals, trade goods had to be carried from, from place to place. So it's perhaps a little slower and perhaps not the enormous uh, volume that may have been in, uh, in societies that benefited, benefited from technology like the wheel. But the long and the short of it is that the Aztec Empire, it expanded rapidly and relatively peacefully too uh, in the initial stages of the rule of of Moctezuma um, and offered unprecedented stability to the estimated 5 million people that lived under the rule of the Triple Alliance. So this is a truly colossal empire, an enormous, enormous sprawling empire. Political entity here. Just just to give you a a sense of how big this is, right? An enormous number of people for for this period in history. To give you a comparison, at the same time, right? By the end of sort of, even a little bit later, by the end of the 15th century, the population of England was barely two million. Barely two million people lived in England, while the Aztec Empire at this stage, right, up to five million, maybe more than that, five million people. So, so it was, it was a young. But a very well-developed empire, it punched well above its weight with Moctezuma at the helm as well, and the Triple Alliance, the Aztec Empire, was on its way. However, this era of peace and prosperity, of course, it wasn't to last forever, as it turned out, because in 1446, six years into the rule of Moctezuma I, things started to take a turn for the worse. A plague of locusts ravaged that year's crops, leading to food shortages, and I'm sorry to say it only got worse from there because in 1449 Lakes Te- uh, Lake Texcoco it flooded and inundated Tenochtitlan and uh, did a lot of damage to this you know to the to the huge city which was don't forget on an island in the middle of the lake which is uh, certainly not ideal when there are floods and uh, this was just the prelude because in 1550 from 1550 onwards there was a terrible drought a period of Awful drought here. Things got really bad, massive crop failure, and eventually, of course, famine. This drought lasted for four years, and the resulting food shortages led to uh, Tenochtitlan's population falling significantly as other people, uh, you know, people either left to seek better fortune or just, you know, died. Um, Moctezuma, however, he wasn't going to sit in his hands about it. He was going to get up and do something. He was, he was, he was, do, you know, do whatever he could to bring this disaster to an end. And he decided that uh, the wrath of the gods had been invoked that they were in some way angry and needed to be uh, need to be brought back, brought back on side and so what he did was this he summoned his military and he said listen you fellas, i want you to go out there and i want you to go and take as many prisoners as you can now why would moctezuma need a lot of prisoners in order to uh, to try to get the gods back on side it's because he intended to sacrifice these prisoners to the gods, and therefore try to uh, you know try to uh, mollify their anger a little bit. And it's time to have a chat more broadly now about some of the uh, religious customs of the Aztec and the f- and the fact that human sacrifice was a very important part of of their culture of their of their, of their religious culture in uh, in particular. Aztec religion is polytheistic. Uh, they have got a whole heap of gods. You might have heard of some of them, some of the more famous ones like uh, Quetzalcoatl. Uh, The Feathered Serpent, but uh, the most important god within uh, Tenochtitlan and the Triple Alliance was Huitzilopochtli, uh, who's the patron god of the Mexica people, as well as being the god of the sun, the god of war, and, unfortunately for enemies of Moctezuma and Tenochtitlan, also, the God of Human Sacrifice as well. So, Quetzalcoatl did all right with the ascent of the Mexica as the dominant people of the Triple Alliance. He was he was a pretty minor god in the Aztec pantheon before, you know, the ascent of the Mexica. Uh, he got a big, big promotion after, you know, the people of Tenochtitlan um, ascended to power and had a massive temple built for him in the middle of the city. Festivals were held through, you know, thrown from throughout the year. Um and much of the the social reforms that i talked about under its right that were carried on then by moctezuma much of these social religious reforms they helped to instill huitzilopochtli as the forefront you know at the, at the very forefront of religious activities and a big part of the religious religious activities for the aztecs was of course human sacrifice and tens of thousands of people were they lost their lives in ritual killings for for the aztec gods huitzilopochtli seemed to have quite a hunger for, uh, for human sacrifice too. And Moctezuma was keen to sate it in order to try to lift these uh, these droughts. And so in the wake of this natural disaster, he gathered as many prisoners as he could, and he had them sacrificed. And the sacrifice, might I add, was quite a spectacle. So what would happen is, you'd, you know, you you'd take your prisoner, we'll come to how those prisoners were gathered in just a moment, but you get your prisoner, the victim would be painted and dressed up Uh, taken up to the top of the Grand Temple, up the stairs, right, laid out on a stone altar, and a priest would use a blade that was made of either obsidian or flint to cut the still-beating heart out of the victim's chest, which is pretty bloody gross. Um, The heart would then be held up to the sky as an offering, but that's not even the grossest part yet, because the body would then either be cremated, or, if it was a prisoner taken by a warrior it would be given back to the warrior, the body, who would then, the, the given back to the warrior who captured in the first place, who would then dismember the body and, in some cases, bloody eat parts of it, mate. What is going on there? So, I mean, they were extremely intense. Uh, There's just a lot with the whole human sacrifice deal, the Aztecs there, but you might be asking, where did all these victims come from, right? And I said a lot of them were prisoners, and certainly many of them were, and but not not all of them. But how how did they source the the people for the you know that they would be that they would then go on and sacrifice? But believe it or not, you know the ones that weren't prisoners were actually a lot of them were willing participants. Uh, they believed it to be a you know a great honor to have your heart ripped out of your chest while still alive. I guess all right, sure, not for me, but go off, I suppose. But it was such a big part of Aztec culture uh, that uh, some parents would even offer their their own children up as sacrifices, unbelievable, you know, if they weren't giving themselves up. So it was it really was just you know a huge part of public life. But many sacrificial victims, as I've, as I've already said, uh, were prisoners, right? They were prisoners, and specifically they were prisoners of war. And it's here that I want to introduce you to another part of Aztec culture, one that sprang up in response to this period of drought, a thing called the flower war. The flower war was a series of organized conflicts between the Triple Alliance and their enemies that was kicked off by Moctezuma as he sought for a way to gather new prisoners to sacrifice the gods. So when he came to his military, he said, Listen, I need as many prisoners as you can get. Basically, the Flower War was was developed as a way to source a, a fresh supply of, of, of prisoners, right? They were, they were highly regulated conflicts, there were lots of rules and lots of regulations overseeing how they were fought, but they were all to support the objective of the war in the first place, which was to take as many prisoners as possible. And I taught, told you before about how important this new religious education that Moctezuma's people, that they received in these socially stratified schools, right, that he'd set up. I told you how important they were, and they were very important because it, these were used as a vehicle to set up the flower war. You know, flower wars were already on their way towards being seen as a noble and worthy religious activity. What would happen right during a flower war was this: the two sides they would they would organise a uh, a time and a place to meet with their armies. Usually, usually you know, elite warriors taken from the upper classes, and these two armies they'd meet. You know, they begin to fight not with the usual weapons that they'd use in in more traditional conflicts, you know, stones, darts, and other range weapons, stuff like that. No, no, they'd get up and they'd up up close and personal. Mate, get the clubs out. Good bit of biffo. Um, because a big part of the flower war was proving your martial ability over the enemy right it was something of a proving ground and a lot of emphasis was placed on fighting with honor so you know they, they were they were they were training grounds for younger warriors as well they were usually less lethal than a full-blown conflict because you weren't again you weren't trying to kill the opponent you were trying to overpower them demonstrate your martial proficiency and then ultimately take them prisoner so they were a lot less lethal in general as long as you didn't get captured and later have your heart ripped out of your chest. Um, but with this, you know, this lesson focused on lethality, it was, again, more about besting your opponent, not necessarily killing them. Fewer dead opponents means more captured opponents, which meant more sacrifice to the gods. So people are a lot less in the flower war, people are a lot less concerned with with killing and a lot more concerned about capturing. And on top of this, right, uh, you know, setting up the, the flower wars as a vehicle for, for, the, for Moctezuma's Aztecs to... To get as many prisoners as they could, the the people of the Triple Alliance were just like way better at fighting than anyone else. Like they were just they just had the strongest and best trained army, right? And so a flower war was a great way to leverage that advantage because no longer could you flood the battlefield with just numbers. It was a highly regulated, as I say, there were strict rules on how many people fought. And if your soldiers are better than the opponents, you're going to come away uh, winning the day with with you know, a big bag full of prisoners. So how it actually worked in, in in real terms as well, it didn't just have sort of a religious significance, but it was also used as a political, as a military tool. Moctezuma would, would you know, let's say he wanted to conquer a city, right? So he wants to go and conquer the city rather than invade them, right? They've got a home ground advantage. They can defend themselves, whatever else. Maybe they've got the advantage in numbers, whatever else. Instead, he would just challenge to a flower war, even footing. You know, his blokes are way better fighters than the, than, than the opponents. Um, and so you go and you say, let's have this flower war. Let's have this flower war for religious purposes. And then you fight the war, you, this this battle, you hopefully win. You take a bunch of their best warriors prisoner, and all of a sudden, that invasion looks a looks a, a, a fair bit bloody easier than it was going to be now that you've winnowed out their numbers in this religious conflict. So it was used as a political tool as well as a religious tool to expand the borders of the empire. If Moctezuma had a bone to pick with a city-state, he'd challenge them to a flower war, he'd go and winnow out their numbers, their elite warriors, whatever else, take a prisoner. And then bring them under you know the the threat of unresistible, you know irresistible force he'd bring them into the uh into the fold as part of the Aztec empire but why you may be asking why did the, his enemies why did enemies of the triple alliance even go along with it you know when he come along and said oh let's have a flower war why didn't they just say ah no nah, let's not let's let's just not do it cuz you're going to crush us well here's here's what would happen moctezuma he would issue the challenge of a flower war and of course right he'd made it so you know it set up these rules so it was very dishonorable very cowardly in order to to refuse right so in order to refuse you you lost a lot of face and, and that was not something that a lot of city states were, were willing to do but the other thing was there was an added little uh, bonus here if you accepted moctezuma's challenge to a flower war he would actually supply you with all the weapons that you needed to fight, so basically this bloke could come to you and say, "Hey, let's have a flower." With you. No, no, no. He's like, oh, well, what if I give you, you know, just stacks and stacks of weapons to fight? I was like, "Well, free weapons, I guess." Like, w- let's let's go for it, and and also we don't have to, you know, incur the wrath of our populace by, by, by seeing being seen as lily-livered cowards for saying no to this challenge. So very clever little system, a very clever little racket that Moctezuma uh, sort of set up for himself. He and you know he sort of incentivized other, other you know, his enemies to, to to fight. You stood to gain a lot by fighting honour, first of all, religious favour, and a bunch of weapons. And if you did well in one of these flower wars, you would also take prisoners from the Aztecs. And so, you know, the terms were, it was a pretty juicy deal. But of course, you had to go up against an enormously powerful empire with one of the best militaries, you know, in this part of the world uh, to do it. And if you ultimately also refused the challenge, Moctezum would, Probably just attack you anyway, so you were kind of buggered no matter what. The flower war then uh, it uh, you know became a very big part of the of the religious of the of the military customs of the Aztec Empire, and it stuck around for a long time. After beginning in 1454, it continued all the way through to 1519. Um, and, uh, you know, the rules and the conventions of the, of the flower War, they may sound very strange to us, but, you know, it certainly suited the purposes of the, of the Triple Alliance, suited the purpose of Moctezuma, um, and, uh, you know, their venerated position as a, as a worthy religious exercise kept them going for a very long time, as I say, all the way through to 1519. As for this, uh, this whole drought business, well, the huge number of sacrifices that uh, Witsilopochtli and the, and the rest of them received, they must must have moved the needle a little bit, uh, because within the next few years, Moctezuma, uh, he stepped up his campaign to conquer other regions once the drought broke and and people had food in their bellies once again. Moctezuma is now off to the races. There's no, there were, you know, the years of peace are over. There's no, there's no more of this, uh, you know, speak softly and carry a big stick. Now it's speak very loudly and, you know, wave the big stick around, bonking people on the head all, uh, with it all over the place. And uh, Moctezuma, he was determined he was going to bring more land into the Aztec Empire. And I guess I should clarify here, you know, I, I said I'd talk a little bit about the terminology. It wasn't really an empire in the sense that we usually use the term. I've talked about this a little bit. Power was very decentralised. There were individual member states that had a lot of autonomy so long as they provided tribute and soldiers to Tenochtitlan very regularly. It's funny because, you know, we call it the Aztec Empire today when in fact neither of those words would have been used by people at the time. It wasn't really the Aztec Empire so much it was the, I don't know, what, Tenochtitlan hegemony. Um, Tenochtitlan, being the the biggest city and the dominant member of the Triple Alliance, had a lot of power, a lot of control over the regions under under its influence. But they still remained; they still retained a fair bit of autonomy. And in addition, importantly, they also retained a lot of cultural and linguistic differences. The Aztec Empire, or you know, if we want to call it the the, the Tenochtitlan hegemony, uh, it was one of the most culturally diverse empires, quote unquote, that the world had ever seen. And you know, while there was a fair bit of internal diversity. The the overarching structure of the empire, with its uh, patrolled roads, with its trade network, and, uh, you know, w- was generally very politically stable um, given the leadership of, of Moctezuma and the way that he approached, uh, you know, his, his hold on power. Uh, and this continued to develop right through to the end of his reign and beyond. He was one of the most important and influential leaders in the establishment of this empire. And, you know, from his, his political, his social, his religious reforms, all the way through to his military conquests, Moctezuma catalyzed the development of Tenochtitlan uh, from its humble beginnings as, as a client state to the centerpiece of a mighty empire with a magnificent capital as this central state of, uh, seat of power. But, as you may already know, this was not to last. And the end of the Triple Alliance was much closer than anyone there could possibly know. This was an empire that was on the way up. Still, still, you know, in the estimation of the people back then, it's still approaching its apex. It had so much land to conquer, so many people to bring into the fold, so many, so many hearts to rip out of, so many chests, right? But the end of the Aztec Empire was on the horizon. Moctezuma died in 1469 around, at around 70 years of age. And the young empire that he had helped to forge would only last another 50 years. I mentioned before that the Flower War only lasted until 1519, and there's a very good reason for that, because in 1519, the Aztecs were faced with a new enemy, an enemy that they had never come across before. Because it was in that year, in 1519, that the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes arrived on the shores of the Aztec Empire and began a campaign of conquest against the Triple Alliance, which was then led by Moctezuma II, the great-grandson of Moctezuma I. But that, I'm afraid, is a story for next week. Join me then as we get across Moctezuma II and the downfall of the Aztecs. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans, for this week. But do make sure you join me next week because we're going to talk about uh, Moctezuma II. We'll talk about what happened to the Aztec Empire between the two Moctezumas. And, of course, once Cortez arrived on his shore with uh, with a bunch of bloodthirsty Spaniards. And we'll get across exactly how things panned out from 1519 onwards. So I do I, I do hope to have your company then. Once again, thank you so much to Eric Masita for sending in this suggestion. It really was fascinating to learn about this. And, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. But thanks, Eric, mate. Um, If you'd like to do the same thing as Eric, halfasshistory.net. There's a contact form there. You can uh, do exactly what Eric did and use that to get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, and there are links also at halfasshistory.net to find old episodes. You can find links to subscribe to the show, and of course, to the mer- to, to the merch store where there are very—it's a handful of t-shirts left available for purchase, as well as of course links to the Patreon, uh, where you can support the show uh, and get access to things like bonus episodes, and all sorts of other nonsense as well. If you're into that sort of thing, thank you. Special th- special thanks, of course, go to all the Patreon uh, Patreon supporters. And regular thanks. We've got the special thanks for the patron supporters. Regular thanks for everyone else, which includes the uh, the people who are out there, you know, spreading the uh, spreading word of the show. People who are out there telling people about Half Past History. Very very much. Got to get those. Got to get those numbers up, mate. Got rookie rookie numbers in this racket. Got to get those numbers up. Anyway, that's it. Thanks for tuning in. As ever, closing the show out with a question posed on Reddit. We've Got a, a question that comes from redditor disgruntled old trot. Of course, to do with the Aztecs. Couldn't go past this one after I, I came across it, and it's a good one to think about here as well. So, disgruntled old trot wants to know. <coughs> If the Aztecs were the leaders of the Triple Alliance, why did the Treaty of Versailles blame Germany for starting the First World War?